Hi, Nick. Hello. <laughs> How's it going, Nick, I, Nick I'm, Martin? <laughs> I, I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm drinking my second Pabst right now for the yeah, afternoon. So <laughs> you, you said that sometimes it's good for scientists to have a beer to, to loosen up. We, we, yeah, it's, it's like I said earlier. We're just we're we're so guarded with our answers about things because you know we don't want to be. I don't know, perpetuating misinformation or something like even even on a, a relatively benign scale. <laughs> you know, it's funny. That's kind of the opposite of the way that many people are. Well, that's our our governor down in Florida for sure. <laughs> <laughs> he feels very confident, doesn't he? he, he yeah, yeah. It's I, I don't know. There, there's some saying I can't remember what it is about. You know, that's confidence is the. Uh, is the um, the nectar of the wise man, but you know the the um, the poison of the fool. <laughs> Confident is the nectar of the wise man. Yeah, but the but the um, the drug of the fool or something like that, okay, I, or yeah. the alcohol of the fool. Yeah, well, it definitely it does seem that com- confidence and competence are not usually. In- <laughs> They're not necessarily correlated. <laughs> You think they would be in balance with each other, but it's often their opposite. There's often an inverse, yeah. Yeah. an inverse yeah. relationship between them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> stakes too. Stakes play a play a huge role in confidence. Like the, yeah, the, like the the stakes that. So there's this there's this phenomenon. I, I can't remember what it's called. I, I think it's like the bike shed paradox or phenomenon or something, where. Um, and it, it, it comes from this this small town in like Pennsylvania or, or I, I don't know where exactly where um, you know every every structure or um, company that that went into this town uh, had to get approval from you know the the citizens within within that county and um, they were looking to put in a nuclear plant and you know the people that were trying to put the nuclear plant in in they're they're up there and they're they're going over all the facts and figures and like everybody's like fine 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 whatever you know it's where we all in favor or all opposed but then this they wanted to put up a bike shed <laughs> like by the library and people lost their fucking minds <laughs> cuz the stakes were so low everybody had an opinion and apparently like this is a psychological or sociological phenomenon that I, I don't know if it's unique to Americans but yeah so, so if the stakes are low people really want to get involved yes yeah yeah but I don't know. People seem to want to get really involved when the stakes are high too. So, <laughs> <laughs> but maybe when this, they didn't feel like they were justified in having an opinion about the nuclear plant. Or yeah, something. yeah. I mean, I but I, I kind of, I don't know. I appreciate that mindset. Like, oh, I don't, I, I don't know anything about this, so I'm just going to leave it to the experts. Yeah. Um, but yeah. <laughs> the bike shed. So people were like, but we. The bike shed has no, to No, the bike shed has to be this far away from the library because it's, yeah. That's great. Yeah. Well, how, how has it been? Uh, how many weeks have you been back in, in Michigan? Oh, God, it's like five or six now. Um, five weeks, Kelly? Five and a half. Five and a half weeks, yeah. It's, it's, there, it's the old... There, there's this old running joke in academia. It's like, academia is great because... You know, uh, you you can work your own schedule. Every every day is like a Saturday, but you work on Saturdays. 
but you've been relaxing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, no, no, no. It's, I've, um, I haven't done any work work. I, everything that, that I've done here has either been for the cottage property or... Um, that Actually, that's pretty much it. It's so you're doing physical done. work. Yeah, physical work, which, you know, that's, that's a lot more relaxing. It's, I know. It actually is, isn't it? Yeah. When you're stressed. Yeah. It, I mean, compared to the... Maybe because, in a weird way, the stakes are lower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, absolutely. It's, I don't know, just this whole, like, dissertation writing, it's, the, like, perfectionism starts to leak in. And, well, you probably know that. Well, but there, every, so. but it's like every, everything you do on the dissertation, like, do you have it in the back of your mind? Like, this is going to determine where I get a job and how I, it's going to be. No, I, I'm actually not that concerned about it because I, I don't think anybody reads dissertations anymore. <laughs> it's it's all about the publications that you that you get out. Oh, okay. And, and that's that's sort of the the problem. I, I, I mean, one, one of the reasons why, you know, I, I've told you this story before, like one of the reasons why my PhD is taking a lot longer than I wanted it to is because, um, you know, I, I was originally doing chemical ecology, and all of my analytical equipment was at the USDA, uh, along with my samples. And you know, I, for the like, two years, I painstakingly tried to extract this chemical to, you know, good like good quantifiable data for, you know, what I was what I was doing. Um, and then COVID happened. COVID happened, and the. USDA apparently has this policy where that case numbers need to be going down three weeks consecutively or else they shut down the building for anybody except for like the senior most uh, researchers or, or you know whatever their, their position is and so I, you know I couldn't I couldn't even get in the building for two years so I had to come completely switch fields I mean I mean not completely like I'm still doing you know evolution and ecology stuff but I'm, I'm doing it um, you know with behavioral experiments as opposed to like looking at the um, concentrations of these chemicals and then I'm doing a lot more theoretical work um, was that because you couldn't go back and restart like the way that grants and everything work you couldn't go back and restart those old projects no it, it was it was me not being comfortable with sitting sitting too idle. Like I, I have a really hard time just not doing anything productive, um, even if it's not necessarily the thing I'm supposed to be doing. Like I have to be doing something all the time. And you couldn't be on that original project. Yeah, I, any anything. of those original projects, I couldn't do any of them because I had already done the experiments. I was just waiting to quantify the the amount of compound and all that, that was in the plants. Well, I mean, there there may be another opportunity to do it at some point, but like I have to I have to get whatever sort of USDA clearance again because my my access to that building expired in uh, twenty twenty two. So, um, you know, it's kind of bad luck. That was kind of bad. Yeah, but it, it's it's sort of a silver lining for me too because I. I really like what I'm doing now. In fact, I, I think I like it better. Um, you know, I get to I get to work with these interesting systems that I'm not necessarily an expert in. Get to talk with those experts. Sometimes, like actually, get to see the systems without having to, you know, rear them in a lab or any of the sort of hard work that goes into it. And then I can look at, you know, the data I collected or data that other people have collected, and then put it into like a mathematical framework. 
and I, you know, I like math, so <laughs> um, it's it, it's working out well for me right now. Um, I'm sorry, I yeah, and it's just so you're almost just a little bit delayed. It just delayed yeah, yeah, yeah. So 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 that's I I'm. I'm going about two years longer than I had originally planned to go, um, I, but I think that happens a lot. It does, it does, and and people people switch fields all the time, yeah, and yeah. and in more dramatically than I did. It's yeah. just um, the the one of the big issues for me is that I am in an entomology department, and so my dissertation needs to be entomological in nature. Most of the research that I've done, either be you know, the behavioral experiments I've done, or these like mathematical models that that um, I've done, are non-insect systems. So trying to one of the things that I'm trying to do now is sort of reverse engineer this game theory model that I did for fish for predator prey fish species, and sort of coax it into an insect centric. Model, um, but it's it feels it's really hard to get motivated to do that because it feels really disingenuous. So, <laughs> <laughs> but your but your dissertation, you're you're moving in that. Direction. Yeah, 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 no. So, so I have I, I do have two um, two chapters that are essentially done um, from the uh, behavioral experiments I did with the. Um, the, the insect species that I work with and uh, Carolina wrens is a predator um, and then another chapter that again uses the insect species that I was originally supposed to be working with and then jumping spiders as a predator so Ooh, yeah that sounds fun yeah it was it, it was a lot of fun it's and, and it was really conducive to COVID because uh, one the spiders I just kept in my office at home and so I, I posted I, I posted a picture um Back, back in like 2020, when you know COVID first first started happening, of just this this wall of shelves with just spider jumping spiders, and easily had I don't know 50 of them at one point, just hanging out. And these girls would would come in occasionally and clean their cages for me. It was it was it was great. Um, but then then the Ren study, you know, that was taking place on USDA property as well, but. It was all outside, and so they said, as, "Well, you know, as long as you stay outside and you don't come in the building, then you know you're fine to just carry on doing your experiments." So, um, and I'm really excited about that paper because uh, it's it, it's a really novel idea that nobody's. Yeah, you know, a lot of science is just sort of like adding on little. I know, little incremental. Yeah, things. yeah, but this is I I think is a. Um, a, a, a novel enough idea. Can you say what the novel idea is? Yeah, yeah. So it, it's it's basically this idea that um, okay, so you know you think about things like you, you, we're just talking about milkweed up at, up at the barn, right? So you know milkweed uh, is ho- is a host plant to a bunch of different insect species, right? And they specialize on that species um, because they're more tolerant of the toxins that those milkweeds produce. Um, but they're not just tolerant of it, they actually sequester that into their body and use it as a defense against their own natural enemies. Um, so what the question that I got really interested in is, well, what happens 
in this intermediate stage, when you have a specialist herbivore like a monarch butterfly, it's starting to sequester its host plant defenses, but it's not aposematic yet. It's not brightly colored. Like, how are predators able to tell between a, you know, the difference between a toxic prey item versus a non-toxic prey item um, that you know may be of the same species? It was actually when I was walking in the garden with Juniper. She she looked at a plant. And she pointed at it. And she's like, "Is that a milkweed?" It's like, "Yeah." How do you know that's a milkweed? She's like, "Cause there's a monarch on it." It's like, "Oh, okay." And it's like, "Well, you know, if she can if she can make that association, and like I can identify some plants without you know it being critical for my survival. I'm sure something like a bird." is able to be like, oh, last time I ate something off that plant, I got really sick or it tasted really bad. Um, so I'm just going to avoid it altogether. And that's, I, for both the birds and the spiders, that does seem to be the case. Is like, they just, they will avoid those plants that had defended prey on them. And it isn't necessarily that within their lifetime they've learned, gene- they may have learned over the species but, has learned. Yeah, so so that's a that's a big thing in uh, research when it comes to aposematism is like how much of this is an innate versus a learned behavior. And there's probably a lot of innate stuff going on. But in the experiments that I did, um, I actually made it so that both the defended and undefended prey looked exactly oh. the same. I, I, I made these little pastry, I call them pastry dough models. We just take uh, just some flour and then uh, lard, or not lard, sorry, like beef tallow um, of all things, and then just dye it with a little bit of food coloring and I can show you a picture of it yeah. later. And, but, um, and then I, I would flatten that out and then just roll up, you know, whatever sort of critter I was using at the time, either the, you know, the defended prey, these atalas that I was working on, or these wax worms, which I guess are like filet mignon for, for birds. Um, <laughs> at least that's what the ornithologist I was working with told me. Um, so, yeah. Oh, okay, so you, and they did learn. Yeah, no, they did. In, in fact, it was, it was kind of funny, like, there, there was a, there was a, a series of wrens where they were doing this, um, it, it, it was it was downright human. It was they were they were doing this like post hoc fallacy, where it, so it's I, I'm sorry I'm gonna get in the weeds here a little bit about my experiment. So you know I would I would make these models right, and then I would put them on one or two different plant species, and then I would just I, I would have these wrens in this aviary, and then I would just let them feed like and just observe like okay are they are they feeding on. Um, you know, prey that are on this plant that has all the defended prey on it, or are they feeding on this plant that has the undefended prey on it? And then to to try and get at like whether or not they're using those plants as signals, um, I set up a, I set up those same models with defended and undefended prey at a feeding tray that like their their normal feeding spot without any plants there. So the idea being is like, okay, can they make this the distinction when they're on the plants? but not when they're the prayer, not on the plants. Uh-huh. And a few of these wrens did this really funny thing where they would go up to, during that control phase, they would go up to that feeding station, they would grab one of the prey items, one of those prey models, and they would fly it back to the plant 
that didn't that had the undefended, the tasty prey on it. Wow. So they were doing they this were like hoping that like they could make that. Yeah, they're like, good. well, last time, last time I ate on this plant, it was good. So I'm just gonna take this. Oh my and bring it over. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, and you you screwed them up. Because yeah, they, they yeah. Could, they didn't work. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, do you think then that maybe the the issue I was just having in the barnyard was that my my donkeys, one of my donkeys was was not feeling well, and he started well for whatever reason started eating milkweed, which is slightly poisonous. Maybe he will just learn and stop doing it. So, so yeah. So that there's a. I mean, I don't know. I don't know donkeys. I don't. I don't know like what goes on in their brains. But the, they're very smart, and apparently they have excellent memories. Okay. Apparently. So 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 two. Th- I I can see two things happening. Right. So one, yeah, the milkweed's making them sick, which I'm I'm really skeptical about because oh, okay. it might not be just that. because okay. that that particular species of milkweed is not particularly okay. toxic. Okay. Um, like I've eaten it before, and okay. it's, it it kind of tastes like asparagus. Um, uh, I've heard as a, that as a scientist, you've often eaten and tasted. I, I've tasted a lot of things. <laughs> that probably I, I put a lot of things in my mouth that I probably shouldn't. But uh, um, the other thing I was thinking of, and I didn't think about it until just now, um, you, you know, there's this whole field of research of like using toxic plants medicinally. Yeah. Um, so like monarch butterflies will do this. You know, when they they end up getting infected with this uh, protist parasite, uh, and call it like OE, um, they will actually start laying their eggs on the more toxic milkweed plants because their offspring have a better chance of surviving. And And you know what? I'm going to tell you something. I have forgotten this year to worm my donkeys. So they they may be doing some self medicine. Yeah, yeah, because those those smaller. um, I normally worm them. I normally do, and I just this just this week I remembered I hadn't done it. Yeah. So you think they could be? I, I mean, I don't knows? know. I'm just, I like, yeah. I, I'm going, I'm, I'm doing the, the thing of like going through like, okay, well, what are all the possible yeah. explanations involving milkweed that you know could yeah. be causing, you know, you know, it, it's, it's connected with the, you know, what, what your donkeys are doing right now. So. Yeah, I, I don't know. Like, yeah, I, right, because you don't know yeah. the donkeys. So. I know. I wish. I actually wish that more people would study donkeys. Nobody studies them. Yeah. Here they are. This big. Thing. I, I sent you a link. That this this may have been like two years ago um, about some genetic research that came, came about from donkeys, and for the life of me, I can't remember what oh, it was about. Maybe, I'll have to look donkeys back. Donkeys out west. Yeah, it was the donkeys out west. Yeah, like in the Grand Canyon, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I did. I'll look back at your old messages and see if I can find. Yeah. It. Was it? A, did you email it to me? Maybe? I, I think I, I think I posted it on Facebook. Oh, okay. Like, just a, like, and yeah. on your I know I am interested or, in that yeah. a lot of them are in a lot of donkeys have problem with inbreeding oh, yeah, there's yeah, a lot yeah. of issues because people don't necessarily take care yeah but uh so um since you've been back in um Michigan what insects have you enjoyed seeing oh the surfids I I'm I'm always a huge fan of surfids now what um, are surfids so surfids are um they're often called hoverflies uh, they're they're flies, so they're they're members of the order Diptera, so they're true flies. Um, but a lot of them, the, at least the ones that I'm interested in, are bee mimics. So they look like bees, and you know probably are avoiding you know 
getting eaten by certain types of predators that have had experience with beasts and wasps. Um, but, you know, the, you, you expect Florida, and, and maybe it is, and maybe I'm just looking in the wrong places, but, like, you expect that to be an insect diversity hotspot. But I've seen way more serpent species here since we've been back up. Um, it's I, I mean I can I, I can think of two serpent species that I routinely see in Florida. And one is um, one is the surfet. It's a uh, it's some type of rat-tailed maggot that's associated with like sewage and whatnot. They're, and they're beautiful adults and it's like these big green. They look like big green bees and they'll just you know, hover at you at eye level and, you know, you move your head and they, they move down with you and you move your head back up and they move, and they move up with you and then you can, you can see them pooping, um, this, <laughs> this, they have little poop droplets that fall down, um, and then, uh, another species recently got renamed and I don't know the new name, but we used to call it Pseudodorus uh, clavatus. Um, it's uh, it's another surfid, and I actually worked with it when I was doing my masters here. Uh, so like that that oh, surface, that's one that's here. Or that, that's one no, that's no, here? that's one okay. that's in Florida. No, yeah. we we don't get them here. But I had somebody. Um, I think it was Greg Wheeler from the USDA ended up sending me some because we knew that. Um, so when I was working on my masters here. I was working with milkweeds and the aphid specialist, the oleander aphid. Um, and there are certain predators. So, you know, generally we, in ecology, we tend to think about predators as being uh, generalists, you know, feeding on lots of different Whatever things. Whatever they, yeah. And, yeah, and then like parasitoids are specialists. But um, at least within the milkweed system, there, there does seem to be these different levels of special. I don't even know if it's specialization, but diet breath when it, um, when it comes to feeding on these these aphids that are toxic from sequestering these these toxins from from their host plant. And you know, on the extreme end, you have these excluded predators that you know if they if they try and eat these these aphids that have been feeding on milkweed, they'll just die. Um, because those aphids are so toxic. And then you have these peripheral predators that um, they can eat the aphids, but they don't do nearly as well as if they were eating some sort of non-toxic aphid species. And then you have these included predators that they do equally as well, if not better, feeding on the toxic specialist. Um, and that particular species of surfid, uh, my master's advisor, um, based on some work he did for, I, I think it, when he was a postdoc, actually down in Gainesville where we live now, um, showed that that species is actually a, uh, is one of those included predators where it, it does extremely well on that, um, that particular uh, plant specialist. Now do you get, I just remember when you guys lived in the, in the Lustron house, you would sometimes go out in the back somehow in the back and it would be covered with bugs. Oh, yeah, we were we were lamenting about this last night. So um I, I came I went outside to grab something and I came in and on the on the uh, wall or the door, there was a dobson fly. Oh, there was a dobson fly. I yeah. love to see a dobson yeah. fly. Yeah, we the, see them at the cottage sometimes. Those, yeah. are, those are super cool. And I'd, 
They're, I, they're I mean, so, can you describe? They're like three inches long. Oh yeah, they're, they're just the well. So so they're the the order they belong to is actually called Megaloptera, which means like big wings. <laughs> um, and they're uh, so the I don't know if this is. I know all when species. you see them, you almost feel like something's gone dreadfully wrong. Yeah, well, like, yeah. I mean, they look menacing. Especially especially the males because there there's some sexual dimorphism that takes place. So like the females do look different from the males, and the males have these these horrendous looking jaws um, that I'm not, I'm not sure if they're ornaments or they're weapons um, because that's, that's, that's sort of a distinction when it, when it comes to these things is, okay, is this, Oh, is it actually functional? Or yeah. Well, well it, I, I mean, I guess it's functional, it, it's functional regardless, but like, is it, is it because, you know, females are choosing males? So, so if it's an ornament, you know, is this something that females are choosing or if it's a weapon, is this something that males are using against each other to compete for females? And I, I don't know that anybody knows um, whether those those Dobson fly uh, jaws, mandibles, whatever you want to call them. Um, I don't know that anybody knows if they're uh, weapons or ornaments. But anyway, so I, 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 I saw it and I opened the door and it came flying in and I pointed it out to yeah, I pointed it out to Kelly and she's like, you know what I miss. I miss the 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 bug wall at the Lustron. Because, <laughs> we used to leave our back porch light on. It was and amazing. Every night we'd go out there and we'd have different things on the wall throughout the year, like all the various insects. Green lace wings, brown lace wings. Were they attracted to the metal? I, I, mean, I, I well, I I think it resembles it, the color resembled bark mm. enough that it was it was doing what you know most insects do at night is to you know they try and. Try and find a good place to hunker down. Well, they should be hunkering on this house then. Yeah, and, well, and but I, I mean, I saw that Dobson flies. So yeah, I wonder if we're just not looking. Like, it might be interesting. Did it help that there was a light there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, maybe it'd be worth it to put a light, even just an LED one we could stick on there and see yeah. what we could attract. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because it looks yeah. like wood. We yeah. get a lot of tree frogs on the house. Yep, yep, yeah. yeah. We've, we've been noticing the tree frogs as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, We've been noticing this year the the dre- the fireflies were a little bit slow coming out, but mm-hmm. they're they're doing really well yep. this year. We're seeing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Now oh. somebody told us that we notice in the woods uh, that they're way up into the trees this year more than ever. And somebody told us it's different ones at every height. Yeah, yeah. So so there's there's. Um, Why you apologize to the whole See, I, 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 I know two firefly experts that might might listen into on this, so I'm like hesitant to. I know to this say is our example of like <laughs> Yeah, but as I understand it, um, I know for sure that there are different light patterns between the different species, and that's that's one of the ways that um, that male um, and female fireflies will detect you know each other as. Um, as being uh, potential mates, and there, there's some firefly species that actually uh, uses that to their advantage. It, it's it's called the femme fatale um, syndrome or, or phenomenon, uh, where this one particular species of lightning bug will flash in a pattern that makes it look like this other species, and so a male sees that and they're like, "Oh, a, a, a female," and they go over there, and then the female just ends up eating that. That oh no! <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like I'm not gonna mate with you after yeah. all. Yeah, but yeah, I, I do I do think there is um, 
is sort of this uh, this elevation effect too. Because um, sometimes it seems like there's some fireflies that are just on the lawn. I mean, mm-hmm. they're just low down. Yeah. Well, and, I think I think those are primarily the females. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. I don't know why. okay. We get fireflies in our backyard, but they're not nearly as showy dense in Florida as they are up here. Our Florida ones are fast moving, and they are higher up for sure. But they're mm-hmm. not like the little slow ones. They really? Have so you'll there. see them zipping. Oh yeah. Oh, oh they're so, so fast down there. Huh? Yeah. yeah. They fly so fast. And apparent, apparently, it's it, like that area and sort of the southern part of Georgia is a firefly um, hotspot, diversity no, hotspot. Yeah. I okay. yeah. I don't know if, if Gainesville is, that but part is um, but but close to that area that we're living in um, is a diversity hotspot and we we have like one of the in, in my department we have like one of the world leading experts on firefly um, diversity and uh, phylogeny and whatnot well there's and there's only somebody said there's a couple places in the world where they have those fireflies that all flash together, oh. <laughs> isn't it? It's something rare, right? Yeah, it's yeah. It's, I, I don't know. I it's only there's that. certain species. We don't have them here. I don't think it's no, only a few places yeah. in the world. But apparently, when you see it, it's really something. It's to like see. synchronized sort of. Yeah. Oh, interesting. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah. And uh, what else have we been seeing? And we had the mayfly hat. Yeah, which, yeah. That you know, was... people around here call them fish flies a lot of times. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I guess, yeah. is that just because the fish are eating yeah, them? Well, I, yeah, they, they eat them, and I, I think a lot of people um, end up using mayflies when they when they tie their own uh, flies for fly fishing. Um, like, it's a really common bait that they use. Um, I, 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 I don't tie my own flies, but when I used to do fly fishing, it's I would... I, I would use ones that, you know, very much look like mayflies, so, um, yeah. Yeah, because That's, when, I mean, it's funny because they, when they come out, I mean, there's no warning, and then, yeah. and then and just you're driving mess. past the river, <laughs> and it's snowing. Yeah, yeah. It's, oh, I, it's I, so I can't, beautiful. yeah, I, I was meeting an, an old committee member, um, from my master's degree, uh, on Monday night, and I was, Riding my bike back and like right under the bridge. Um, oh, there were you so just many. Like, oh yeah, <laughs> no, they just completely splattered my was face. Was that actually highway? Yeah, 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 yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. and I noticed. Uh, so we had the big, the big hatch, mm-hmm. and then it was about five days right in Comstock, and then about five days later, I was on Sprinkle, and it was doing that. So, mm-hmm. do they have different? Hatches, or is it? I, I assume like there's gonna be some some variability. There's, there's um, different species too. There's different oh, species. Yeah. We okay. went up north earlier in July and we saw the the large bodied yeah. ones. We had yeah. them all over our campground. Yeah. Um. And and when we were on our way up here, uh, that campsite that we stayed at in Georgia, there was there was a bunch of those large mayflies there too. But yeah, there's different species, and then. I, you know, I, I don't know what actually causes a, a mayfly emergence. I'm sure it's some sort of, you know, climate conditions or environmental conditions. And, like, you you know, you get these, like, little separations of microclimate and that, you know, that might have an effect. It could be the different species. I, I don't know. And it doesn't feel like it happens at the same time every year. Like, it does seem like there's some variation in yeah. the year. Like, but they, I've heard it's yeah. critical for the, and this, is, this would contradict what I said. It doesn't happen at the same time every year. Because I've been told it's critical that certain other creatures depend on this oh, big, I'm, I'm sure. this yeah. big influx of some yeah. food. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure something out there is just like waiting for, you know, to to just uh, you know, 
gluttonize the, themselves and just eat whatever's a, a things, a things that migrate yeah. do have some timing that's sort of interesting. We had um, we have robins in Florida, and um, our cherry tree, our Florida native, the Carolina cherry tree, which they mm-hmm. love so much in Florida. The robins. Um. Yeah, we had a warm winter one year where we didn't have the freezes. The cherries happened earlier, and it meant that the cherries and robins missed each other. <gasps> Yeah. And we didn't have our robins that year. Yeah. And normally our robins are like all over the yeah. cherries. They're everywhere. They're eating them. Cherries Drop are it, dropping cherry. Yeah. And there's like hundreds of them. And that one year that the it didn't time right, we had cherries just like one in the ground and the robins. Yeah. Um, so I don't know what happened to the robins that year, but they didn't eat cherries. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I, I mean, I mean, some of you know some of these these interactions are. are highly evolved um yeah and that's why this this whole climate change thing that we believe oh, in man. is that like we need it all to happen i mean it needs to make a new it needs to be i mean gradually it's going to form a new plan but yeah some things yeah. are going to be lost along yeah. the way oh yeah. oh yeah absolutely it's it's that's that's actually sort of the direction i see myself going now is looking at at more Climate-related phenomenon, um, but I don't know. Who I've knows? heard that you have to be careful now because you'll get death threats. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, just, we're just reporting the weather apparently too. <laughs> oh, so some some weather reporter or I, I don't know if it was a reporter or a meteorologist was saying climate change too much, and so a, a bunch of yahoos ended up screaming about it, and oh, it's a cute kitten. And uh, this person got fired and got some death threats and yeah it was. A, it was yeah, nasty I, I heard a couple of. I listen to Canadian news and they always talk about they talk about that. Yeah, actually, actually the last last two um, postdocs I applied to were dealing with climate change and. Um, and he felt You know, looking at impacts on on you know biodiversity or human you know human disease vectors and um yeah no, it's it it's serious business yeah because well and it does seem like everybody who needs to keep their business going in the future like there will be i mean insurance companies need to be keeping track of things and yeah, yeah, um yeah and critters yeah. um do you know um one thing that often I like to talk about with people when they come to Michigan is that it's about the spiders. Oh, I'd say, oh, yeah. No, I love spiders. <laughs> wait, wait. Well, yeah, well, it seems like people in other states are surprised when they get to Michigan and find how many spiders and that they are everywhere in yeah. your home. So, oh, yes, absolutely. I love petting kitties. Aw, thanks, Twin. Um, yeah, I was, so, I, I and, and, so maybe, maybe I just had tunnel vision, um, because I was working with a specific species of jumping spider, um, d- during the, this phase of my PhD, um, called, uh, Phytibus regius, and there's a, there's another, uh, there's another jumping spider that's closely related, I think it's like Phytibus autox or something like that. 
Um, and then, uh, and then there's another species of jumping spider. It starts with an H. I can't remember the name of it. Um, I know people who work with it though. Uh, no, I, it, it completely escapes me right now. But uh, like, those are the only jumping spiders I ever see in Florida. And then, of course, you know, see the banana spiders, which are super cool. Uh, a couple different orb weaver species. And then the green lynx spiders. But when we were at the cottage, I must have seen, like, five different jumping spider species. Um, violin spiders. Uh, um, the, the crab spiders that you often see on, like, goldenrod and whatnot. It was hugely diverse compared to what I normally see in Gainesville. Um, yeah, I wonder, is that something to do with the, the nature of the woodlands? Or I, I have no idea. Because, it's, I mean, even within our homes, we have a huge variety of spiders yeah, who are yeah. in the house. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm really starting, I, again, like, I, I, don't, I don't know if it's just, like, my viewer bias, but I am really starting to question this, this paradigm that, you know, as you get closer and closer to the equator, you know, diversity uh, of organisms increases. I don't, I don't know. Oh, is that's, that a paradox? Is that something oh, yeah, that's you know, generally that, oh, accepted? Oh, yeah, yep, yep. That, that is a huh. generally accepted um, paradigm in e- ecology, is that huh. it, the closer you get to the equator, okay. the more diversity you see huh. um, among species. And I that's, that's probably true for plants. Like, hmm. it's it just... You know, anecdotally, when when we went down to Costa Rica, like I I don't know that you know any plant right next to each other was actually related to, to each other. Like it was very very lush. There and, were a lot of ferns and orchids. Yeah, there were lots of ferns and orchids. Um, but it it, it I did get the general sense that it was it, that it was a lot more diverse. But um, you know, at least the at least between uh here in, in Gainesville, I, I'm seeing a lot more different types of insects and spiders. Um, I wonder I wonder if when when people make that sort of blanket statement, there's more diversity mm-hmm. there's more diversity at you know in the equator. It it also the thing that comes to mind is something I actually heard again just recently is that our insect species are not we have not found them all. Oh, we are oh, not God, reporting no. them. Yeah. <laughs> we are not actually paying attention to them. Yeah. No, no, that no, no. Nobody has even it's... gone out, even down to our swamp land, yeah. and like taken Cag- out a cubic yeah. yard yeah. of soil and oh, yeah, figured yeah. out everything that lives in it, so yeah. that that diversity might be true of the big things that you can see, but mm-hmm. it might not always okay. be true of everything that's there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, maybe a lot of our insects are brown. What do all the the birders call it? Like little brown little jobs. Little brown job. Yeah, LBJs. Little, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there, there, there are lots of uh, little little black jobs in the, uh, in the insect community <laughs> that are not really as exciting. Yeah, as <laughs> yeah. It's that's it's one of the it's one of the sad things I. One of the sad things about, um, I, I think, the way a lot of like university biology programs, right, the direction that they're going is like there's so much emphasis on you know these technical skills of like oh you're gonna learn how to do PCR or you're gonna learn how to 
I, I don't know, use use this modern technique to, to do something. Um, and I don't know that there's a lot of like coursework on just sort of like natural history and like hmm. learning how, you know, the the diversity of like, it, you know, you you can come across a a relatively benign looking beetle here in Michigan, and it turns out that it's actually a blister beetle, and and it's got this interesting relationship with its host plant, and you know, if you touch it, it has this chemical that'll cause your skin to blister. And I don't I don't know that people are are getting that education anymore. So maybe they're more more of what's happening, especially in the graduate programs, is that they're choosing a particular species and then somebody is doing a lot of work on that species yeah i mean i i don't know i i feel like that that's always been inherent in grad school i i mean saying that as somebody that you know only started grad school recently i i, I don't think that's too uncommon but i i'm talking about it like the undergrad level yeah like, so they know. would be go- well it's interesting because like you know the geologists who are you know they have this big geology camp mm-hmm. and that that apparently they're spending six weeks every day, all day in the field that's, doing that's, things. Yeah, that's so great. And it's like, it's, why don't we have a yeah. nature? I mean, you have things at the nature center, which well, are oh, isn't it neat? Well, there, there are programs like that. So, um, you know, right before I moved to Florida, uh, I had that job at the University of Michigan oh, Biological that's Station, right. and that was so immersive. Oh. Like, it's I. So I ended up leading two student projects. One was looking at the effects of um, uh, sulfuric acid, so like um, acid rain on uh, milkweed communities. And then another one was looking at uh, how the shoreline plant species end up affecting the diversity and abundance of macroinvertebrate aquatic species. So, so like we we went across this big lake and looked at like the, the diversity of macroinvertebrates in the water when it, there's nothing but pines at the shoreline mm-hmm. um, versus you know nothing but maples at the shoreline at this other end of the lake, um, and so you know they they had those kinds of projects, but I I mean so much of their time was spent just like going out in the woods and observing different things and coming up with research ideas and projects just based on what they observe yeah and what and the thing you're describing like every age of kids should be doing that oh yeah i I mean your kids do it yeah i well i mean i mean that's 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 sort of uh, by design with us we we this is your designed experiment these four kids yeah well i i mean you know we we, we've probably worn them out to doing these sort of like nature naturey things like they're probably bored of it at this time but like you know it, it, anytime somebody starts complaining about ah it's our, are we almost done we, we always start this point game right where it's like okay wh- whoever something interesting yeah whoever sees something interesting and you know it, it could be something just like a, a, a canker on a tree um, or or, you know, like a, a, pretty a pretty mushroom or, you know, an, an interesting hawk flew by. Um, you know, you, you always get a point for, for that oh. stuff. And, and it, it gets them a lot more engaged. In, in the point game. The point game. That yeah. is great. Yeah. We Big should pin. play that adults and kids alike. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, the point game. And it's on your toes. Yeah, and because it, 
it's sort of like those are the people you want to talk to anyway in this world, the ones who notice interesting things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> like we could do that to our friends. We could decide which friends we wanted to hang out with. Yeah. We could secretly <laughs> be playing the point game. It's, it's, one, it's <laughs> one of the reasons why I fell for, for Kelly is like we, we, you know, we'd go for a, a walk on the H Avenue trails or something and she'd be like, oh, it's that. Look at, look at this interesting plant species and oh did you see this one right and there's a variation of like sometimes you know a lot and know their names and then mm-hmm. sometimes you don't even have to know their names I yeah. love the idea that you can it's okay to not know the name of the oh, yeah. thing yeah you know? yeah just 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 observe that there's something interesting out there and um, you know if you want to you can always dive deeper later yeah and now actually I do find it handy the Google lens oh my god that's such a great. <sighs> Such a great app. I mean, it often will mislead you, but yeah. it's okay if you understand it's, its limitations. Yeah, and like I know a lot of people that use iNaturalist, um, both just like recreate, you know, recreationally, like take a photo and then iNaturalist. Yep, that's is that's that one you have to pay for? Or no, is it a, no, is it a no. One? Okay. But um, and then a lot of the, a, a lot of uh, science is actually being done with that app, like because oh. they because they store all of their data and you know it's it's freely available. Um, and then I know other people use another app called Seek um, that they that they use, but I I think Google you know the Google app with the uh, lens, um, oh, the Google Lens app it works just as good. <laughs> She's carrying kittens. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she's carrying one kitten right oh, now. Oh, you got, you got great kitty. He's so sweet. Uh, but it does give people a freedom of, and, and what is that pleasure? Like, there is pleasure in just seeing, in just seeing something interesting. But then, as human beings, we do get the great pleasure in like knowing its name and finding out what it's related to and how it interacts. I don't know. I, th- this is this is something that like I've I've struggled with my whole life of like trying to understand what motivates me, right? I, I don't know if you deal with that at all, but like you know, I, I am very motivated to to understand like you know these ecological and evolutionary interactions and whatnot. I have no idea where that comes from. Oh. Like, what do you say that you're most interested in? What, what am I most? Yeah. Uh, of, of, as far as just in a generic way, like you see creatures in the world and plants and you see things, are you, you're interested in their interactions, but like what? I, I probably, probably just uh, uh, adaptation in general. Like I, I'm really interested in the, you know, these, these very specialized interactions of like how, how the hell does that evolve? And you know how does it evolve so so quickly? Because like so at, at you know aposematism like is a big deal to me because you know okay what is apos- so so apos- is is um uh it, it's some type of warning signal um it's usually coloration um it, it may even be exclusive to coloration I don't I, I don't know about the technical definition but um. You know, something that either is like brightly colored, you know, with red and orange colors, or like you know, bees and wasps that have black and, and yellow stripes. Um, there are, are different types of like audio aposematism too, like the, you know, these moths that make these weird clicking sounds that yeah. you know bats know to avoid. Um, 
but you know how how does how does something like that get going right because if you're the first individual that's brightly colored and you know you don't you don't have a means of of um, surviving an attack like the the fitness for that trade is zero right like say you're say you're some some beetle or or butterfly you're brightly colored and you're, you're so you're also very, very visible yeah you're very <laughs> visible right and and so if you're the first one on the scene that looks like that it doesn't matter how well defended you are if you don't survive that initial t- attack by all these prey that are like ooh there's there's food or predators that are like ooh there's food over there um then that that trait has a has a fitness value of zero um and so it, it's well it's, in that first generation i guess because in the first then, generation because then those birds that then die because of eating it don't <laughs> yeah somehow. But 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 that's the thing too is like a, a lot of a lot of these defenses you know they're not they're not lethal, mm-hmm. right? So you know they moder- could just be bad tasting, yeah, or yeah. make you a little sick. Yeah, or- but it's you know that prey's not necessarily going to survive that attack though. Like yeah. you know monarch butterflies are, are extremely fragile. Um, I mean, uh, I'd, I've easily accidentally killed you know all sorts of butterflies, and not, <laughs> not just monarchs, but. Um, yeah, if if you're if you're the first one that looks like that, then you know a predator can see that and be like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna eat you, um, and if they don't survive, then you know how does that trait actually get passed on? And you you know you have this this um, species that's just so highly adapted to one feeding on this this ho- you know this very specific host plant. But then, you know, also avoids predation at this extremely interesting and large scale. And isn't um, isn't the answer just massive populations and huge amounts of time? No, yeah, well, I I mean, in general, sure. But I I I think that's well, I know for a fact that like that's that's just a, an existing uh, paradox of yeah. like how you know how does. How does apose- how did aposematism evolve in the first place? Um, and I, I don't think we'll ever know. Um, you know, the best we can do is like write mathematical models. <laughs> how it's working lately? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you asked Bonnie what Bonnie, you asked Nick what he's interested in, and I think actually I could answer that a little better. Is Nick is interested in creating better statistics and finding better answers? Yeah. Because right now our this is what we should be talking about: is the statistics. This oh yeah, I, I, I am. And why does that? And why does statistics so matter? Much well, in the world where we think we're making good decisions about things based on bad statistics. There, yeah. Okay. So, so I, I was. Yeah. yeah. So so this is this is a big. This is a big thing for me right now is trying to do better statistics in science because right now the at, at least in you know chemical ecology and behavioral ecology and and and, and medicine for this matter um, you know things that actually do have an impact on, on hu- human lives um, you know the the sort of standard process or paradigm is like okay I'm gonna do my experiments. I'm going to find out what statistical null hypothesis test I need to perform, whether it's a t-test or an ANOVA or whatever. I'm going to perform that, and as long as I have something called a p-value that's less than 0.05, I can say that okay, I found an effect, and report that, and and it gets published, 
and then that becomes part of the scientific literature. But p-values are probably the worst statistic you can possibly do, and our entire scientific paradigm is is dependent upon finding um, p-values that are less than 0.05. And a lot of misinformation, um, bad science, and not-so-great science is, is... Who's in charge of this? Well, <laughs> that's the thing. Nobody. <laughs> See, so, like, you, you get into a field... Um, yeah, and, and and in fact, I've I've had I've had some papers reviewed where somebody who clearly knew the knew the biology of what they were doing really really well, um, but knew nothing about the statistics. Did I get my rabies shot before? <laughs> yeah, don't know that you've ever gotten a rabies shot. Why are you worried about getting getting rabies right now? Because they could scratch me. Who? Kitties. 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 They're not biting right now. You're fine, no. bud. You're fine. They only scratch. They don't have rabies. We've watched them for a few days. They're healthy kitties. Do they have <laughs> um, uh, I forgot what I was saying or what the question okay, was. Okay, no, but you said that somebody who should have oh. Kn- oh, knew yeah. the biology. Yeah, so, so somebody that, that probably knew the biology really, really well but knew nothing about the statistics that I, that was, mm. I was using... Um, you know, actually said like in their review, you know, next time hire a competent statistician. And it's like, I, it, you know, I, I'm not a statistician, but I've devoted a lot of time and energy into understanding statistics, at least on a level where I can do the best science that I can do. Um, okay, and the reason is because it helps us. We get results, but we don't necessarily know how valuable yeah. the results are or yeah. in what way they're valuable without it's, understanding the statistics? It, there, there's a couple of problems with it, right? So, so for one, when you, when you just rely solely on the single value, everybody's racing to get that value. And so people, uh, researchers... And they will, like to publish it in the newspaper. Yeah, so, 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 so researchers will often do this thing um, at... at least the and and like there's nothing um insidious about it like they're they're trying to do honest work but you know they'll do an experiment and say like they have 30 replicates and they do an experiment and then they do whatever sort of null hypothesis test they're going to do and they come up with a p-value that's greater than 0.05 right that's that's the that's the arbitrary standard that we have in the sciences and it is very arbitrary um didn't get the significant p-value, so they'll add like five more samples to their data set. They add those five more samples, and oh, okay, we have a p-value that's less than 0.05. The problem is, is if you don't have a large enough sample size, the distribution, so like the statistical, the the probability distribution of p-values is completely uniform. So you will, if you don't have a big enough sample size, if you do one of these statistical tests when your sample size is five, you might get some, you know, a p-value that's greater than 0.05, but then, you know, you add five more to that and it's going to be less than 0.05. You add five more to that and you're just going to get some random value between zero and one um, if your sample so size you is not big enough. people will just kind of manipulate their I don't just think they do this. 
this is this is a yeah no this is this is not how it's supposed to work no no no, not at all not not within that statistical paradigm in other words they didn't design the experiment and then let it play out instead they got experimental data and then added to it yeah they 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 did yeah they did the experiment and then they just kept repeating the experiment until they got the p-value that they were (laughs) looking for and this is within that paradigm that is that is not okay you you have to you have to completely do a whole other set of replicates um you know you can refine your your methods and whatnot but you if you're using that particular branch of statistics you have to start over before doing your analysis and people aren't doing that the other problem is is that they will go through a litany of different statistical tests that probably don't have any bearing over what they actually did and do all these like weird mathematical transformations so that they do get the p-value that they're looking for yes I, and this happens exactly all the time these, these transformations yeah i know exactly yeah what you oh, oh my, my data <laughs> it's it, like, like i there's this work I, this workflow that's that you know it's it's never stated but like i know happens of okay i did my experiments i did my t-test oh I didn't get a statistic, uh, statistically significant effect, so I'm going to look at my data. Oh, it's not normally distributed, so I'm going to log transform it, or you know, do do some sort of like fractional transformation. Oh, I got this the p value that that I was looking for, and like it's just it's complete and utter nonsense because as soon as you start manipulating your data like that, you're not actually. You're well, not, it'd be one thing if before you ever started you justified when I get done with this mm-hmm. I am going to take a logarithmic value I'm going to yep. instead you know but they're not yeah doing that. they're not doing that and and so so there there are basically two schools of thought on like how to how to fix this problem the one is pre-registration of studies and like that Ooh. that is it's really popular among medical journals yeah, well, it's you. You need somebody that knows how to do the statistics. That's in, that. That's because it, it operates just like peer review, mm-hmm. where except for that you're. Yeah, in a few minutes, I will. I will. In a few minutes, you should show Grandma Dawn. Oh yeah, show Grandma Dawn then. Show Grandma Dawn first, and then we'll. So so you you it, in this sort of paradigm you you do just what you would do if you were trying to submit a manuscript. But it's just you do it before you do the experiments. That's a great idea. It's, it's awesome. That's a great idea. There's a lot of cheating that happens, though, where people will do their pre-submissions after they've already done the experiments. Yeah, 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 like, yeah, that yeah. absolutely happens. <laughs> the, 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 other, the other fix, and, and this is the one that, you know, I've, I've sort of jumped on the bandwagon for, is to use a different statistical paradigm. Um, that actually puts puts um, puts the science before statistics, right? Where you you develop a model, a statistical model, and you just throw away p values altogether. You just just don't even deal with that. Um, you develop some sort of scientific model, some sort of scientific process model. Like this is how I think the world is, and then you collect your data, and then you update that hypothesis or that model based on the data that you end up collecting. And the nice thing about that is that you don't have to start over, right? Like if, you, if you're if you not seeing the effects that you expect to see, 
you can just keep adding on more data to it. You might never see the 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 effects that you you know you want to see but because it's just data which it's, is perfectly it's, honest like well, this is before yeah, well i no i mean like it's it's subject to 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 bias but it's not it's not creating this this false dichotomy of like okay either there's a difference or there's not a difference right like that's that's the whole thing of um, with a lot of these statistical null hypothesis tests, right? Is like you you do this experiment, and then you're going to do this this t test or this ANOVA or whatever sort of. I'm going to assume the null hypothesis is true. That's my model, and then I'm going to compare the data, and I'm going to tell you either the data do fit that null hypothesis, or I can't say that they don't fit that null hypothesis or that they definitely don't fit that null hypothesis. And if they don't fit that null hypothesis, then I can go get my study published in Nature or wherever. <laughs> um, but that's, that's, a, that's a really bad way of doing things, right? Because you're just, you're, you're creating this false dichotomy of like either there is an effect or there's no effect. Um, the, the approach that, that I've been trying to take in, um, people that use the, the sort of statistical frameworks that I've been using lately is to say, okay, I have a model and I just want to see how well the data fit that model, right? If that makes any sense. Okay. Actually, that does sort of change the whole focus, doesn't it? <laughs> it does. It does. <laughs> it's like it's, you're testing your model. <laughs> you're testing your model. But, but that's, that's what we do, right? Like okay. everything in science is just a model. Like it, okay. it's... Yeah. The you know the Newtonian motion is is a model that works okay. really really well on Earth. Yeah. Um. But you know outside of of our you know solar system in our neck of the woods, general relativity is a much much better <laughs> model for understanding gravity. Um. You know you start talking about like populations uh, in in ecology. You know that it's you're you're looking at lack of Volterra models. There's nothing. There's nothing inherent about nature that says, well, you know, prey should go, you know, should oscillate like this, and predators should lag like that. It's just, it's a model that uh -huh. we have, and, and then, then you can take data, you know, any whatever data you or or somebody else collects, and you can compare that against the model. But what what's happening in science, most science right now, is the model is that there's no effect. There's no effect whatsoever, and I'm just going to do everything I can to make to, it look like there's an effect. Well, we'll prove that 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 null model, that no effect model, is 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 false. Oh, oh, okay. You're saying that no effects say whatever if it's something to do with a chemical yeah. or something. Yeah. You can. But but the problem but the problem is is that you because it's nature. There's there's always some sort of a, a sort of effect. It might not be the thing that you're actually directly measuring, but there's always a difference between two populations, right? Like you look at a population of deer over here and a population of deer over here, and there's always going to be differences between those two populations. The question is, is how meaningful is that difference? What a lot of it, at least in my field, what what I've seen a lot of is that people look for their look for those differences and they're just trying to acknowledge that there that there is a difference right um and then that's it for them but they that's as far as they go 
the thing is, is if you have a big enough sample size, you will always find those statistically significant differences. It's just what we should actually be looking for is meaningful differences. So the, so the example I always give to my students is that, okay, so there's a drug company in Portage, Michigan that shall remain nameless um, that tested a, a drug for um, high blood pressure, right? And so they got a bunch of candidates to come in and, uh, you know, they, they either got a placebo or they got this new drug that they're testing. Um, everybody that they tested had a, uh, blood, uh, a systolic blood pressure reading of 160 uh, milligrams mercury or whatever unit it is they use um, or higher. And so they gave this drug to to um, half of half of the the sample and uh, gave a placebo to the other half. And they had a thousand people, right? So if you were just solely to rely on this this magical p value, this null hypothesis test statistic, you could have something a drug that only lowers their blood pressure by you know five milligrams mercury or two milligrams mercury. But if your population sizes are big enough, it's just going to tell you that oh that you know there is a difference. It's statistically significant, and then that company can put that drug on the market saying that, oh, it reduces blood pressure. But for somebody that has, you know, 160 over, you know, 90 uh, milligrams mercury or whatever the units are, um, blood pressure, having it get lowered by 2, 5, or 10 points, that's not medically meaningful, right, for somebody who has blood pressure that that's that high. But that's that's literally, like, what so much scientific literature out there in chemical ecology, behavioral ecology, medical um, science, it's just relying on those p-values. But it would be valuable to, I mean, if they discovered that it reduced it by 20, then well, they would advertise that. Well, so, so, you know, let's say a uh, uh, healthy, yeah, so let's say a, a healthy systolic blood pressure is um, you know, 120 milligrams mercury. And if they're at if they're at 160, if it lowered it, you know, 40 points, then yeah, that would have a lot of medical relevance. You know, say it lowered it 40 points compared to the the population that got the placebo. Yeah, that would that would be significant. But you know, if it's only lowering it five or, or 10, 10 units, um, for and and your population that you're actually studying has blood pressure that's, you know, 160 or above, it's not actually doing anything medically for them. Okay, so. because they're still in the category of it's still too high. Yes, exactly. Okay. They're, they're still and in that you feel like they're being disingenuous because then they market it saying, this lowers your blood pressure. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, exactly. it does have real-life ramifications. It does, yeah, absolutely. So. And, and there's, there's estimates that, like, something like 89 to 90% of the scientific literature out there is false. Yeah. Because of this over reliance on people. Well, it's not. It doesn't seem false because it does say it does lower the blood pressure. But you're saying that wasn't the right question. Yeah, it, it's that there, there's there's they're the, insinuating they're this in, is going to make you healthier. Yes. Yeah. The the implication is is that like this is going to this is going to bring your blood pressure down to a healthy level, and it's not actually doing that. It's it's simply statistically lowering it. 
Like, I mean, you could just take some magnesium or drink some water and bring your blood pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You you could you could do other things that are that are equally as effective. Right. And so that just seems misleading. I yeah, mean, if the if it was about say money and it was like you'd want you'd want to use it if it was going to make you three more dollars, but you know maybe yeah or, well well you know it's it's like i don't know i mean i'm trying to think of an it's, example where there's not this problem i mean it's, it's like it's like being a millionaire and and finding out that like oh if you put in all this time and effort you're gonna earn three dollars more a year okay got it right yeah okay like well that's good because i was going to ask you because we have to finish up but i was going to ask you for a real life model and there you just provided <laughs> one like i think, I think you did but misleading. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. why is that a problem and yeah. it's because it really does affect people yeah. and things that affect medical oh. things and yeah. health yeah it's it, it's it's sort I'm of very concerned about the Every magazine article I read, I feel like they took some early tiny study and oh, then that oh oh that's yeah no no that's shows. that is a notorious problem. It's so that so that's the other aspect of it that you know a big problem in science is that we have a we have a rep, replication uh, crisis is is how it's yeah. often referred is that you know the a lot of journals will not publish replication studies. So you know oh, you have. Wow. You have one science, you know, one group of researchers that does this experiment, and the thing that should be happening is that there should be another independent group of researchers that try to conduct the same experiment to see if they get similar effects, and that just doesn't happen enough, especially in my field. Okay. Um, you know, it's it, and you know, I that's it's not great, but the stuff that I'm doing is not impacting you know human lives or, or anything like there that there should be so. a massive magazine that's online that's just called replication science replication and that and people could get credit for those yes studies. yeah absolutely well it's, I know that it, my cancer doctor every time I came into the camp you know I saw him every six months and every time I came in with something I just read yeah. and always he had the same yeah. answer he said it, yeah, it looked kind of promising. It it's not, it's not doesn't seem to hold up in the replication. Yep, yep. It's it, so so medical science is a, is a lot better at replicating than you know say ecology, um, ecological studies, and, and and some of that like especially when you get into these like long term ecological research projects that have been going on for decades. Like that's that's just a practical problem, right? Like you, you, nobody's going to invest. Uh, you know, thousands, sometimes millions of dollars to, uh, you know, conduct the same experiments that you've been conducting for the last 40, 50 years, whatever, whatever the case may be. Um, but you, you, you mentioned the Journal of Replication, and, and it, it got me to thinking about this other problem that, that this whole p-value, like reliance on p-values has, is called the file drawer effect where some academic or some company, like drug manufacturer, will do a study they don't get the you know the statistical significance that they're looking for and so they'll just take the data from that study and they throw it in the file drawer right it used to be a literal file drawer now it's this metaphorical thing and i for for years now i just need to find a an ambitious programmer that will see my vision out <laughs> because um, i because i don't have the skills nor the motivation to actually do it myself um I want to get something going called myfilejoer.org 
where scientists can take their their studies that didn't have statistically significant effects and just and just just there. get it out there that so that other people well but yeah. is a drug company going to do that well i don't think a drug company is yeah. going to do that but, but I, other people might yeah i okay. i think I but think wouldn't it, it be great if drug companies would it, it would it would be and and i feel i feel like that you know, stuff what, needs it, to be well like, and i hate to say it but this might actually be a good use of ai you know, it's I, possible. I I am hesitant. Really? You're, you're, you're going to okay, get sucked into yeah. another thing. Like, you, well, I've just, already told you my feelings towards AI oh, in scientific can, research. Okay, like, you can you can say I'm say I'm. Oh, I just I don't it's you told me it it's it's the problem with AI and AI can be used to do some pretty incredible things in in science. Um, like no question about that. I, I'm looking at AI algorithms to count the number of aphids on a milkweed pro, uh, plant, um, just from using photos. But the the problem with AI, if you're using these black box algorithms where you don't know what's actually going into the process of making these these predictions, you can't make any sort of causal inference, right? You can't say that oh this is you know res- like causing or is responsible or I'm this percent certain that this is causing this effect that I'm seeing. All it can do is you can just throw data at it and and try and get a prediction out well, of it. Well, I mean, a black box is always a problem. What I'm thinking of is a creeping little thing that just creeps all over looking for studies that have, you know what I mean, like a searching thing. Right, but, could... but the problem is, is if you have if you have a black box algorithm doing that, it might not actually be looking for the things that you want it to look for. Oh, really? You think and it might be looking at things that are correlated with the thing that you're looking for, but actually don't have any bearing. And you think because it's AI, I mean, because I could imagine writing a computer program that just searched for terms. Yeah, and, and so, so that's guided AI. Oh, oh. And guided AI I, I is see great. What you're saying. Okay. Yeah, it's yeah, just. Yeah, it's just the black box algorithms. Like, I, I just got done... Re- it, where you let it make up its own mind. Yeah, yeah. Like, okay. I, I just got done reviewing a paper a couple of months ago where they they literally used an AI algorithm um, to generate these, like, prediction curves and essentially used it to do a T-test for something that actually a T-test... And, and this is a, as somebody who, like, hates T-tests... Like this specific study, like a t-test, would have been the appropriate thing to do, um, and they use this AI algorithm to create this like complex probability distribution. Um, it was, it was, I, I mean, I don't know. It, it, it seemed nonsensical to me, um, but uh, I love that word. Nonsensical. <laughs> it's, <laughs> I, I, I probably overuse it, but there's probably a lot of scenarios. <laughs> There's, there's probably a lot of scenarios in which it is the the appropriate word. But, yeah. Wow. So guide. So I actually thank you for that differentiation though between guided AI because that is something that guided AI would just be basically computer programs or yeah yeah. So so guided. That's guided, not considered art, the real art, artificial intelligence. No, it, it it is artificial intelligence because it, it is it is using these these sort of like looping algorithms to um um and something called uh I should know this because I use it in my Bayesian algorithms um uh gradient descent um toward towards some prediction um and that and so like a it, it is AI it's just 
there's there's somebody sitting there at the controls saying no look for this okay. no look for this no look for this um, the black box algorithms are the ones that are like okay we're just gonna throw a bunch of data at it and then look for whatever it is that we're looking for and that's the stuff that I think is is really really dangerous um, it's um, I on the <laughs> On the, on on the low end, it's something that's that's just gonna produce really shitty art. Um, and then on the uh, on Apparently the more they can write romance novels. Oh yeah, I'm sure. But I I had this is this is just total. I mean, I'm speculation. not saying if they're good romance. Yeah, novels, well, well, but... well, this is just total speculation on on my part. But I do think as like more you know quote unquote art, artistic AI stuff comes out. It's going to saturate the amount of data mm-hmm. that that's out there with AI-produced art oh. as opposed to human-produced art. And it's going to stabilize at this really awful place that has, you know, just no, no actual value or meaning. Like, everything's going to be ultra-trite, right? Because it's just, it's, it's just feeding back on itself. Um, Right. So who's gonna discriminate? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, it's so. So like. You, so like. If you can imagine, like the human produced content is up here, and the AI content is up here, and then at, you know, as as you start to move into the future and more AI algorithms are coming about, the AI produced content is going to outnumber you know, the human content, and then that's going to form the basis of of you know more AI production it's going to become more homogenous when there's just a preponderance yes. of this mediocre stuff yep yep you know, exactly could be, I suppose some people could feel like life has, yeah. has had a preponderance <laughs> of mediocrity in many ways <laughs> yeah and how do we defend against it and are we snobs if we insist, yeah, yeah. insist on some sort of elite scientific yeah. scientific levels a- of uh, of discrimination yeah. or <laughs> I, I mean I, I don't know like I, I, I kind of like I said it's I, I've been looking at, at algorithms for you know just like looking at a photograph and like trying to you know do counts like that that seems perfectly legitimate for me um, but yeah it's I, I don't know a, AI weirds me out and and you know maybe that's just because I don't understand it well enough but it's, I do try and take deep dives into these things and it just it, it seems it seems wrong <laughs> yeah. well someone I talked to recently had an idea that the, one of the problems with AI is while we're developing AI we need to have the best minds attending to it not just engineers designing it but we need to have this global way of looking at it at all times yeah. and and anticipating making predictions and somebody but, yeah. making but instead it's just the engineers the, who are the doing tech bros right, right? Mm-hmm. yeah and and so their their focus is right in front of them yeah their focus well, is and and you know if you uh I feel, I feel like somebody like John Oliver or maybe uh, Stephen Colbert, or, uh, John Stewart, one of the one of those one of those informed comedians, one of those infor- yeah. yeah, informed comedians had a had a whole thing um, that uh, showcased exactly how biased AI is because it's it, it 
I mean, it, it really does end up um, uh, sort of catching the bias of, of the, the people who engineer these algorithms. And, you know, they're a bunch of young tech bros, like white tech bros. And, and that's why a... They, and that's why a self-driving car ended up running over this African-American woman because they didn't actually see them as a person. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Because it, it entered, somehow or other, it entered in personhood yeah. as being of a certain... Yeah, well, I, I don't think it was anything like as explicit... Yeah, yeah, as explicit as that. It's just that I think that all the training data that went into it were a bunch of tech bros hanging out in their, you know, a parking garage or a parking lot. And, like, it, so the, the algorithm only recognized white people as, you know, being things to avoid. Um, it's just... Horrifying. There's a, there's a cautionary tale. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's it's like stepping back a hundred years. It's like, oh yeah, these people aren't actually people anymore. It's, but yeah. but it, it sh- but it also shows how inadvertently, I mean, yeah, yeah. inadvertent mistakes. So it's not yeah. just intentional. Kind no. of so. computational microaggressions. <laughs> No, that's good. You know what's funny is this is a, probably a good thing to end on computational micro. Micro. Well, uh, I mean, if you're killing people, then it's probably my macro aggressions. But, but yeah, it starts out as well because it's interesting because the most interesting phrase that came up when I interviewed your daughters was about the cute aggression. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're keenly aware of cute which aggression. I then had to look up. I had never seen it, so. Um, <laughs> so aggra- aggression of all kinds is yeah. very interesting. Well, thank you, Nick, for oh, talking to you. me. This is the longest interview I've oh, done so far. I've, this I'm is sorry. great. I, I, could talk, I could talk to you all evening. This is great and good to have a beer and yeah, and uh, talk about science and have Kelly here. Meanwhile, making jelly. Jam? Is it jam or jelly? I mean, it's it's difficult to say because it. it gets pressed through the seeds. So I'll have a few seeds. It's like a hybrid. Nice. It's a hybrid. It's a hybrid. It's Queen's Jam because we don't have, that's the, apparently the name is like a Scandinavian thing where you mix a little bit of blueberries and blueberries and with your raspberries. Nice. So I didn't pick enough black raspberries this year. Oh, we always need more black raspberries. I think that baby's been sleeping too long, so I should probably make my exit and go wake him up. So, well, thank you very much, Nick. And thank you, Kelly, for chiming in. And I uh, will thank the kids who kept coming out with kittens. But uh, <laughs> thanks for talking. It's I, it's going to be sad when you guys go to Florida, and uh, but you're going to go down there and be productive and get edu- the kids are going to get educated. So they'll get educated about real history. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. be another that would we're, be another podcast about education in we're, Florida. We're, we're gonna we're gonna indoctrinate our kids in all the ways that the Republicans are worried about. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll say goodbye, everybody. Bye bye.